Hello and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest we have Jackson Reyna. Jackson is a third year graduate student and YouTuber. He studies inorganic and organometallic chemistry designing different first row transition metal catalysts for CH animation. When he finds time away from school he spends time playing video games, walking his dog, playing flag football, or training for the Disney World Dopey Challenge. Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you all for having me. I'm really excited to talk to y'all. And as as an immediate point of clarification, I think the most confusing thing for people in your bio is probably the Disney World Dopey Challenge. Is that a marathon? (laughs) It is multiple races in four consecutive days. So my first question is, why would you do that to yourself? Well, (laughs) I have some friends who are like, hey, you know, like we do these races. And I'm like, you know, let me try. Like, I usually just do 5Ks. So I was like, well, I guess I'll try a 10K. This is like almost a year ago now. So I tried it. And when I finished, I felt so proud, like the running bug just kind of hit. So I've been training ever since because they, they've been talking about these dopey challenges and all the medals that you get, you get a, like six medals total and they're really cool. And I love Disney. So I'm just like, okay, I'm hooked. So <laughs> I started training for this back like in May. And what it is, is you run the first day is a 5k then the next day is a 10k the third day is a half marathon and the last day is a full marathon so you run something like 49 miles in four consecutive days and it's crazy but i really want the medals so yeah um i've been training for that and i just actually <laughs> ran my first half marathon race and i'm pretty proud of myself that I actually one finished it oh, you should be. Under the allotted time i just can't, i mean <laughs> I'm very happy for you, but at the same time, just the idea of running purposefully uh, horrifies me. <laughs> Running's always been my outlet, but I've never, I had never ever tried to go past like three. Three was always like, oh my God, that's so many miles. But at this point now, it's like three is like what I run just like on a 30 minute run. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Well, well, congratulations on that accomplishment. And now we're going to talk about a, a totally different genre of accomplishments in your life. So w- when we get guests on, we like to begin with asking them sort of, how did you get interested in science? I mean, to be honest, I've always been really interested in science, like so much to say as like, even as when I was a kid, because I recently found this, like take a school picture and then like write what you want to be when you grow up. And like each one was like something different, but in science, like the first one I wrote, like in first grade was like doctor. The other one was like surgeon. I mean, they, they were all always medically related, but I don't know. Science has always been like a strong point for me. It was my favorite subject in middle school and high school. I had some amazing science teachers that were like for me. And uh, I did also have some influence from like Grey's Anatomy, (laughs) pushing me more into the science direction. So then how did you because it does not sound like you are into organic chemistry. How did you go from there to what you're working on now? It was a long journey. So undergrad start like with maybe like 90% of the science community is like pre-med right (laughs) then we slowly dwindle off and for me I dwindled off in my second year of university I had this amazing general chemistry teacher and you know I was still pre-med but you know gen chem is part of the curricula to on your way to becoming a doctor or whatever so like I had this amazing professor and she was just like run around stage and blow things up and that like immediately caught my attention for chemistry I was like this is really cool because they showed me the coolest things you could do with chemistry I was hooked so I was just like okay like I really like this so I started volunteering for that professor's outreach program and like I kind of stayed with it and like 
like throughout, really throughout undergrad, I graduated with that program, uh, taking over that program. So, but when it came time to studying for the MCAT, I was like, I cannot see myself not doing chemistry, like for the rest of my life. Like, I think it made me genuinely really sad and like kind of devastated that like chemistry wouldn't be a major part of my day anymore. So I was like, okay, I got to make the switch. So it was a little late in my career, um, my undergrad career, but I was able to catch up with all the coursework and graduate on time. But that is really where like I made the switch to chemistry and uh, working with metals and stuff was during undergrad research. So a little like I was trying so hard to just get into a lab, a professor that would take me because like usually they like to start with like sophomores. I was already like halfway through my junior year when I was like, oh, no, grad school is where I want to go. Like this is what I need to do. And um, this one professor graciously like took me in and she worked with inorganic chemistry and I fell in love with it. Because inorganic for me was always like really cool to learn about because in organic chemistry, you learn like you can only have like four bonds or, you know, there's a lot of rules and structure. And, and in inorganic chemistry, it's a lot of breaking those rules. And like you can have like five or six bonds on a metal. Like I think it's just like so cool because you break the rules all the time. And I loved it. <laughs> you're you're a rebel and anarchist. <laughs> yes. I what I'm mostly getting from what you've told us so far is that you are a person possessed of both drive and organization in a level that I find um baffling but also inspiring. Oh, thank you. I love that you say that um I'm organized because I'm most definitely not. <laughs> My ADHD does not let me, <laughs> but Listen. I try my best, and that's all that counts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what was I going to say? Oh, well, so the the other first thing that I wanted to ask you, which by now is um, uh, not the first thing, technically, but, you know, um, it's, <laughs> in your Twitter bio, mm-hmm. you say, I'm trans because nobody likes Derek Hindrance. <laughs> And I don't understand that joke, and it's I would love joke. for you to explain it to me. Okay, so in chemistry, like, you you learned this in Organic 1. Um, it's basically when there's so much bulkiness in a molecule that, like, it kind of strains the bonds. Like, it's just an uncomfortable way for a molecule to be, basically. And there's different things that can cause that, such as, like, protecting groups on a molecule. So... Uh, steric hindrance is bad for stability and it makes molecules really like unhappy and sometimes more reactive which is kind of what you want but you always want something stable so steric hindrance makes the molecule feel uncomfortable basically like long story short sounds crowded yeah 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 overcrowded basically i it's well now i do know what steric hindrance is but i will say i don't (laughs) i'm still not getting the step Sorry, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So where trans comes in is cis versus trans in a molecule. So um, in a cis molecule is when you have the most steric hindrance. So typically molecules do not like this confirmation. So they'll switch to the trans position where it'll have more room to like just basically, yeah, just give itself more room. Um, so like those molecules aren't like interfering with themselves or like kind of their electron clouds aren't like making the bonds strain or move in a different difficult way. <laughs> this is very much me with the joke of like let me google something real quick yeah this is funny yeah this is funny 
<laughs> yeah, I, have, I actually have a video on it. That was like one of my first videos that I posted in cis versus trans. And I put, I think since science makes, says that trans is better. <laughs> it's, listen, you heard it here first. What I'm going to do is just go through the biography that you sent me. Okay. And we're going to clarify until we know exactly what we're dealing with. All right. So inorganic chemistry is just it, it, not organic chemistry, right? Organic chemistry is typically things that deal with carbon. I'm not a chemist. Uh, and then <laughs> inorganic is like everything outside of that. Am I correct? Uh, I mean, we still deal with carbon in inorganic, but uh, in in organic sorry all these ins and out in okay so in organic chemistry it's mostly just carbon hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen you almost a thousand percent always deal with just those four so boring yeah unbelievable (laughs) and then in inorganic chemistry you know we take those structures i i like to group inorganic and organometallics in the same thing because like they overlap so well i want to say like at least 80 percent overlap inorganic is like more the umbrella well, anyways you take like these carbon hydrogen oxygen like complexes and then you a- you're able to bind metals to them so that's where like the inorganic comes in the metals is where it's at in organometallic are you is it actually relevant to biological organisms or is it just kind of a a, a trick of chemistry nomenclature where Organic chemistry typically deals with these molecules, and then organometallic is you're dealing with the same molecules, but also metals. Does that make sense? I love this question because organometallics, like, we literally cannot breathe without organometallics. And I'm going to tell you why. Hemoglobin, carbons are all around this iron. And, you know, we can't, we literally can't breathe without hemoglobin because that's what transfers our oxygen, right? So the oxygen binds to the iron. Everything that happens in this chemistry is what's binding to the iron. So that is definitely an uh, organometallic compound. And I know like if you've heard about carbon monoxide poisoning. So what happens is the carbon monoxides replace all the oxygens on this iron. And that's why we can't survive if that if we get carbon monoxide poisoning. And not only that, I, I, I seem to recall that carbon monoxide bonds tighter than oxygen does. So it's really hard to get rid of it once it's there. It is like if it's like in so much in excess, like if you're at a point like where not even fresh air, but... Like just a few minutes in fresh air should reverse it almost completely. Oh, okay. This is this is all like re- leftover from like the organic chemistry class I took like ten years ago. Yeah, um, but yeah, like hemoglobin is a perfect example of organometallic chemistry in your body. Wow. CO is a pretty strong ligand, so that's what they're called. Anything that binds to a metal is called a ligand. But oxygen can very easily come back and replace it. Okay, so organometallics. So specifically, first row transition metal catalysts for CH animation. So first row, does that refer to, in the periodic table, the, the literally the first row of metals? Yes. So if you look at the periodic table, it's that first row. It starts with it's where iron, like cobalt, nickel, that top like little line in that dip of the periodic table, like if you can picture one. <laughs> so like it starts with scadmium of... Uh, vanadium chromium that very top like line that's what i deal with because anything after that becomes really expensive to work with and it's less abundant on earth so that's hence the price increase so like even though catalysts like palladium and rhodium are like way better at like achieving any type of chemistry you want to do 
fresh rolls are cheaper and like less toxic and yeah listen as a taxonomist i appreciate um a budget <laughs> uh okay so first row transition metal catalyst is transition metal referring what does transition metal mean so it's describing the block and the periodic table so like okay. your alkali metals your earth metals uh, metalloids so that it's called the d block in the periodic table but it's basically like group three through 12 I don't know if you're like looking at a periodic table. I don't know if you have one up, but I it's am. just like square of like where that dip is right before you get to aluminum, boron, carbon, like right before that and right after beryllium. So like that little dip, those are all transition metals. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why are they called transition metals? Like, do they transition between something? Um, like my best answer that I could give for that one though is I want to say it has to deal with like their ability to bond in such a different way than like traditional like elements. You can predict the way like boron, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen are going to bond with transcendent metal elements. There's like an extra step to that. Okay. And then metal catalysts for CH animation. Yes. Okay. So like I said before, like palladium and rhodium uh, are able to do this. So what CH animation is, is that you're able to break a carbon hydrogen bond and create a new carbon nitrogen bond. I could take like a double bond and break apart one of the hydrogens and input a nitrogen. Long story short, making a new carbon nitrogen bond. So all of that together, what does your research focus on in, in more uh, specific detail? In more specific detail, I have to figure out if my molecule that I'm making can even do this. That is the main goal, making a new carbon-nitrogen bond, but like I have had zero luck with it so far. Um, so <laughs> I've been trying to make a catalyst that will like make this reaction go faster, but I've been running into a lot of sterics problems to make that makes my molecule less reactive. Basically, it's too stable. So um, these bonds aren't able to form because the, the hydrogen is not even able to be removed first. So it's been a big struggle with that. I've been synthesizing all these molecules, but they don't do anything. So like I have all these new like crystal structures and data about them, but I'm just really sad that they don't do anything. So what would be, I guess, for lack of a better term, and I'm sure you hate this question, but the applications for that, for creating this new molecule. If it's a catalyst, can, you know, we produce a whole bunch of other different types of molecules using it potentially if it works? Yeah, so potentially like the applications are, I, I like to say endless, but not really. Um, like the major application we would say is pharmaceuticals, because I want to say like something like 78% of pharmaceuticals contain carbon nitrogen bonds. Mm. Believe it or not, uh, this has like a lot of applications. About 78% of the pharmaceutical industry has carbons that are bonded to nitrogens. And there's, of course, like your industrial processes that do this, but mine would be more like very specific. So that's like where the advantage of my molecules are is that they're very specific types of carbon nitrogen bonds. Um, this is also useful like in agriculture, in biology, um, in all types of things. Is there a reason most pharmaceuticals use that specific kind of bond? This is where like the organic chemistry comes in. Some medicines do use organometallic compounds. Like most medicines that you can get like for regular diseases, like something as simple as acetaminophen or ibuprofen, that's just mostly carbons, nitrogens, and oxygens. That's where your organic chemistry is. So that's why like it's really important to get those carbon nitrogen bonds. And sometimes it's really hard to achieve and either that or like or the organic reactions in place to like make these bonds create so many side products that it gets a little bit difficult to isolate your what you really want it's i i'll i'll tell you what organic chemistry was literally my worst subject ever 
Oh, me too. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what does a what does a kind of a day in the life look like? Like what are you actually doing in the lab? I always like feel so weird about this because to me, I just feel like I'm mixing things together and seeing what happens. <laughs> like, honestly, that's what it feels like because that's literally what I do. Like go into the lab, right? And there's this big glove box, put my arms in here and knock things over because these gloves are so thick and huge. And when it comes down to it, what I'm really doing is mixing things together and seeing what happens, take an NMR of it and just see like if a reaction was done. At least that's what I feel like. And like people in my group, we always talk about this. Like we're just like, are we just mixing things together? But I mean, like there's more that goes to it, but that's what it feels like when you apply it in the lab. But of course, there's all this math that goes behind what to mix, how much to mix, researching if this is even a safe thing to do. And just I think it's more researching if this is safe to do or not <laughs> is yeah. mostly like what goes into it, because then like they act actually like doing the reaction it's so air sensitive so like i said before we have this glove box right it's 100 percent nitrogen in there there's like maybe like three ppm of oxygen in there so basically nothing and it just there's not a lot of technical things you can do in those glove box besides mix things together because it's so air sensitive but if we were to do things outside of the glove box we'd have a huge air-free setup type of thing and like try and make it as little to no air as possible like that's where it would get more difficult but it really does feel sometimes like we're just mixing things together what is the reason that there is almost completely nitrogen in the is it because of how oxygen would react with something yeah exactly that so oxygen would a thousand percent just kill everything that we're doing like immediately like nothing would be possible to do but not only that but Pretty much everything that's inside of that glove box is in there for a reason. So the reason being is that it will explode if it's in contact with oxygen. I want to say at least 90% of the reagents that are inside the glove box are meant to be there. <laughs> so that way they don't react and cause an explosion or some type of fire. <laughs> I mean, that's a great reason for <laughs> containment. <laughs> I love it when places I'm in don't catch on fire yeah i i i admit it does give like an extra bit of daring and excitement to your work of oh yeah you know sure you may work at like a an accounting firm but i work with stuff that could potentially explode any minute i must tell you that as a, a low-key pyromaniac like it is so hard to not just be like hey what if i just took a little bit out of the box <laughs> just to see what happens don't I would never do that i would never do that if don't do it <laughs> yeah i will well that then begs the question for me if sort of the ultimate applications of the work that you're doing are towards pharmaceuticals, right? But mm -hmm. the work that you're doing has to be so tightly controlled in the glove box. And I imagine I'm, I actually don't know how familiar people will be with the idea, but it's basically, it's a large, it's kind of like a hooded setup, right? But instead of there just being a hood, there's, I assume like an acrylic, some kind of clear plate mm -hmm. and you literally stick your arms inside of large rubber gloves yep. and it's <laughs> it's like when you see baby birds at rescue facilities and people can't directly interact with the baby birds because of imprinting so they have to stick mm -hmm. their hand inside of a glove into the box with the bird but i imagine your gloves are not made to look like an adult bird <laughs> probably no uh these I imagine like what you're talking about, the gloves are at least a little thinner, but these are really thick rubber gloves. They're just 
impossible to use. It took me like almost a year to get used to them. Um, I still knock things down, but the very first year that I was there, I would knock everything in my way down. Like, well, if you don't want something knocked down, like get it out of there before I go in because I'm going to knock it down. And I broke so many things inside of that glove box. It's ridiculous. There's still little pieces of glass in the corner that I need to clean up. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to tell on you. But okay, so if the the things that you're working with are so highly reactive to just kind of like normal earth conditions that they need to be isolated in the glove box how does that translate to assuming you you had a great success and it was going to be used in a pharmaceutical setting how do things actually get manufactured in that setting so that they aren't lighting fires all over the place that is a great question um that we usually get asked in like our <laughs> qualifying exams well and you're welcome my honest answer would be it would be extremely difficult to use this in an industrial setting my personal like goal for this is for it to be used more like in a hospital setting where mm. it is a little bit more controlled than like specified for that institutions one of my dreams was to work at md anderson cancer hospital in houston and there they make the drugs that would be like my personal goal for like something that i'm doing is that a hospital can use this when they're tailoring medications for patients this is such a very small subset of chemistry that it would have to be in a really small setting not in an industrial setting although an industrial process would get me like a Nobel prize or something but i don't see this going that way <laughs> i don't want to tell you to curb your dreams because that that would be cruel but just statistically <laughs> i think nobel <laughs> nobel prizes are probably a little bit more difficult to get than probably. <laughs> practical application in a hospital setting and yeah. depending on your attitude towards the nobel prizes potentially you could twist it around in your mind to be like i don't want one of those i don't want their recognition no i mean i really like i've made my peace with it i'm never going to be that person because i just i can't continue doing i don't want not that i can't it's that i don't want to continue doing like this type of research forever well that's a that's a great jumping off point for what do you want to do I've actually been really, um, have been really gravitating towards government jobs, specifically with NASA and the Space Force. I know I kind of giggle with the Space Force, but that's really where I've been like gravitating to. I know it's like a huge, very like 180, 360, whatever from medicine, but I've been really gravitating towards that. Okay. As someone else who also is hoping to work for NASA, what specifically would you like to work on for them? I mean, I know they're doing a lot of stuff with catalysis for either industrial processes or for like generating rocket fuel out of Mars's atmosphere, et cetera. Is there something in particular that you had in mind that you'd like there's to do. There's this very one specific job in NASA, if you're listening, please hire me. There's this one specific job that, because I've been looking at USA jobs forever. But when I first started graduate school, I was like, this is the job that is for me because I am a pyromaniac and I need this job. It was basically an explosions investigator. <laughs> so like anytime something explodes or like happens, I have to figure out why and where the fuel for the fire came from basically so that would be my dream job and it's like a safety officer position like you figure out with why this exploded and like how to control this fire if it explodes again and how to prevent it i just as a child i couldn't use matches because <laughs> i was so freaked out by the proximity of fire so i really i just feel in the the most flattering way possible i feel like i'm talking to an alien <laughs> because <laughs> i've always just been so afraid of fire so i really i want to dig into this what is it about fire that really 
It just. I'm trying to make a pun <laughs> with fire, but I can't, I can't get past lights you on fire. But well, I've lit myself on fire. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> in a safe way, in a safe and controlled. Mm-hmm. Way. I feel like with lighting yourself on fire, there's never safe. There's just safer. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a pretty fair way of putting it. Let's see. I can. I mean, I can stem. We can go on and on about how I am a pyromaniac. I mean, as a child, like I loved fireworks. I even like almost blew up my grandma's house one time <laughs> um, <laughs> on accident. It was an accident. The, the mm-hmm. firework tube ax- tipped an over. Ax- an accident. It did, the firework tube tipped over, and it just happened to be in the direction of my grandma's house. Sure. So, well, my next question is, why do you hate your grandma? I don't hate my grandma. I swear it was an accident. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll play this in court someday. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So what is it? The so are, Is it that fire is mesmerizing? Is it a like a flip in the bird to the gods? Maybe it's just a little bit of everything, like all of the above that comes to mind. Because if you've ever gotten the chance to hold a fire, it is one of just the coolest feelings in the world. Mm. Um, so we do this, we used to do this experiment with methane bubbles. So we just get like a tub of dish soap and water and bubble methane gas through it. And then here's where the safety comes in. You dip your whole arm, you soak your arm for at least two minutes in water. Water has a really high specific heat. So it acts like as a protective coating and you just pick up some bubbles and you light them and it's just warm. And you're just like, nobody can do this safely. Nobody knows how to do this. Nobody has the materials to do this. And like, here I am holding fire. Like, I don't know. It's just that for me was like the coolest thing. And then, of course, breathing fire is also a plus. But I think I mentioned it before um, in outreach program that I eventually took over. That's where really like my love for fire thrived and went beyond fireworks that you can buy at home. Amazing. Well, okay. So you're basically your dream job is, is to be fire inspector to control and to corral and to understand the fire yes can you chemically explain what is happening when something lights on fire so for a fire you need a source of fuel and oxygen basically all you need no oxygen no fire so you have this source of fuel you add some energy to it be it heat a spark you know whatever and then boom, you have your fire as long as there's oxygen. And then as your products, usually sources of fuel are carbon-based. So like the more carbons you have, the better. So like something like methanol that has one carbon won't be as reactive as something like propanol that has three carbons. So source of fuel, carbon-based, oxygen, fire converts to uh, water and carbon dioxide. So those are your two products after you make a fire, which is why cars emit carbon dioxide because you have your source of fuel, which is your gasoline, goes through the engine. There's a combustion that happens in there when the car starts and then you emit carbon dioxide. So what causes, why are there flames? What are flames? I think is, is what Charles is asking. Yeah. What are flames? What's happening? The way that you're describing it, it feels very like, okay, you have source of fuel, you have oxygen, then they have a chemical reaction that produces water and carbon dioxide and heat. But what we're all entranced by when it comes to fires is not just the, you know, the conversion into other molecular products, but the object that is a fire. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I get what you're asking. And 
the best way I can think of it is that that is the reaction happening before your eyes. These things are just getting so hot that you are seeing it in real time. This carbon dioxide coming out, this water vapor coming out, this carbon's being energized to a point of combustion. Like it's just, it's just a flame. It's the result of the reaction. Mm-hmm. It's because it's not a precipitate. I get what you're asking. It's not a precipitate. It's not a gas. It just, it's just fire. <laughs> yeah. It seems like this might be a point where we've kind of gotten to irreducible knowledge of the universe of like, we don't necessarily know exactly why the reaction produces this effect, but we know that this is the effect that comes from that reaction. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, like, even like a quick Google search, it's just like the flame, exactly, like almost exactly what I said. A flame consists of vaporized water, carbon dioxide, water, nitrogen, oxygen, hot enough that it is light. There's something poetic about that. There is. I really liked that. I'm going to get that tattooed somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Not poetic enough to make me a fan of fire, though, because uh, my thing is I like my house the way that it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I also like my human body and skin the way that they are. Um, and I'm always, whenever I'm close to fire, I'm worried that there's going to be a, a change in state that I'm not thrilled about. So it sounds like your your dream job at NASA is not proactively research focused so much as being kind of a safety slash detective position. Do you want to continue doing novel research long term? For the foreseeable future, no, because I've done this for so long. I'm just, I just, I kind of want to get away from it, from the academia of it. I think the academia side of it has really killed it for me. And that, well, that's an unrelatable experience. I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. The, the academia part of research has really killed it for me. Um, and I would, I would like to use my knowledge in other applications other than research. I would like to see what else I'm capable of than just being confined to a lab all day. I see it more as an opportunity for me to grow and learn in my experiences than like giving up on what I've been doing. Well, here's something, and we can edit this out, nice. and you can refuse to answer. You are in Texas. Yes. You are trans. Yes. Yikes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other, or does Yikes pretty much sum it up? Yikes sums it up. Um, I mean, it would be like it would be nice to move somewhere, hopefully soon, where I don't fear that my rights are going to be taken away or that my wife's rights aren't going to be taken away. <laughs> um, be nice to move to a blue state for a while. Although you do want to work for NASA. I do want to work for NASA, which famously yeah. is in Texas. Yes, unfortunately, and also famously I in mean... Florida. It's <laughs> <laughs> worse. <laughs> it depends like Ames the other some of the other NASA centers are in California and in Maryland but I don't know if they're the ones where like you'd be looking after explosions Probably or not, not the one that that explosion job was in Houston in fact <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear damn. the bigger NASA center um there were some space force openings in DC so I might look into that <laughs> uh, the problem with DC is that it's it's so humid it's so humid yeah it was pretty humid. Although it is better than Houston. Oh, it's better than this Texas heat, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, also DC has a lot of great free museums. So Me that's, too. you know, that's some consolation at least. Oh, I fell in love with the Smithsonian. We went and unfortunately like half of it was under construction, but we did get to see my favorite part, which was the space part. I'd never seen it. And I really wanted to go just for the space part. And I loved it. I loved every part of it. <laughs> 
the final part of our episodes, we like to ask our guests to answer one of a set of hypothetical questions, which I mm-hmm. sent to you last night. Do you have one that you would like to answer? I like the volu- the experimental treatments one. <clears throat> In full, would you volunteer to be part of experimental treatments slash surgeries, which we have imagined previously as uh, specific to the context of experimental like expanding trans medical services but you can interpret this as broadly as you would like i would probably volunteer after a set number of people have already volunteered (laughs) okay after i've seen a few outcomes at least 10 at least 10 outcomes that would be okay which is not too many because you know some people have like a higher probably like number that they would need to see but i think i don't know i think that would be something interesting because because i did hear some things about um potential like transplants and stuff but i think that's for yet to come to the trans area well speaking of transplants i think the original context in which this question came to us was when we were talking about it was in march we did a couple of we did two episodes on like bottom surgeries Mm -hmm. and there were specifically we were talking about one article that i read on his on just uterus stuff right of the Mm -hmm. possibility of transplanting uteruses into trans women. And it was brought up that, you know, they had surveyed, somebody had surveyed trans men on like, would they be willing to participate in that, get a hysterectomy and put it in somebody else. And most of them, the strong majority were like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I asked us if she would be willing to participate in an experimental round of uterine transplants and i believe your answer was yes because you were yeah yeah living on the edge that sounds amazing Uh, (laughs) so where do we sign up i'll give you mine right now yeah well as soon as we get the exchange going i'll let you know (laughs) because i was thinking about this recently because i've been looking into more surgical options and i'm going to be very coy because i don't (laughs) you know it's nobody's business except tessa has been very explicit about (laughs) about her experience with bottom surgery on the podcast really yeah oh yeah we did a whole episode on it yeah if you would like if you would like to learn about tessa's genitals in particular (laughs) we have a great episode in march that is mostly about you know just like vaginoplasty and the history thereof but we do have somebody on the pod who has experienced that procedure yep Great job, Tessa. Congratulations, though. That is huge. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I've been I've been reading more about uh, surgical stuff. And the thing is, it's sort of the topic of transplanting gonads doesn't come up a lot, I think, because we've all kind of assumed that it is not a meaningful possibility. And this did actually uh, in the episode that we did essentially on dicks, um, (laughs) there have been successful penis transplants a donor a deceased donor mm-hmm. penis transplant on cis men not trans men but they specifically removed the testicles because of the ethical considerations of like being able to produce somebody else's like you oh i see you like- could essentially use your new testicles to create children that are with not your dna exactly yeah for my part what i would love the most in terms of future directions for like trans treatment is i would love a method of essentially hacking 
gonads to be able to act otherwise because oh i see you know because i i I don't want to have to keep buying testosterone from other people yes oh yeah no no that honestly like more than a uterus transplant if we could have like synthetic gonads that would be great amazing because yeah the amount of times i've forgotten like my day which i forgot Two days ago, I was supposed to do my shot, actually. <laughs> the amount of times I have forgotten to do this. And, like, the amount of times I, like, sit there after doing this for almost 100, 200 times now. Like, I'm still getting, like, that that first initial fear of injection. Like, it just, it's a lot. I have, I've always been on testosterone gel. Oh. Because I have not, like, the most severe needle phobia, but I have a... Mm-hmm a pretty bad reaction to needles. And so for me, it's like, it's, it's two concerns. One is I gotta do this again. Come on. And then it's also gel is so much more expensive. So if I could just kind of get something going, get it brewing inside my own body, At the very and I have to rely on sort of exogenous testosterone, that would be, that would hit me just yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Which does actually bring another question of i think i would be more willing to participate in an experimental procedure if it were some for something that i was personally really invested in does that figure into sort of the the mental calculus that you've done on on this hypothetical because i think tessa is a freak and she would be (laughs) she would be willing to participate in something partially and tessa correct me if i'm misrepresenting your words but Mm -hmm. you would potentially be willing to participate in something just for like the novelty of human experimentation oh hell yeah hell yeah 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 yeah. um whereas i am (laughs) am much more cautious as already evidenced by my fear of matches (laughs) and needles but i like if we were at a point of we have testicular implants that also can produce testosterone somehow. I would be like, I'm more willing to try that than some other thing that I I don't personally care about that much. How Jackson, how do you feel on this area? I think like the same as you, like where like if it was you can get your own testosterone from this at the very least. Um, I'd be like a thousand percent yes. Which is why I like I have like that ten person threshold. If like ten people have done it, like maybe it'll work for me. Jackson, you've been a great guest. Fantastic to finally talk to you after many attempts at scheduling have fallen through. I know. It's been so great talking to y'all. I really enjoyed talking to you guys today. It's just been fantastic. Well, if people would like to see more from you online, where should they look? Instagram is the best way to contact me, really, um, because that's what I use the most. Or like, if you just want to see what I'm up to, at KenWithJax is my Instagram. Fantastic. I used to say where to find me on Twitter, but um, I'm not going to do that anymore. So if you want to find the show, it is on Twitter at ASABpod or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. And Tessa, if the people want to find you. For the time being, I can be still be found on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. Or alternatively, if you want to like not wade into the brewing hellstorm that is Twitter, uh, you can also go to my website, TessaFisher.com. Fantastic. We have an interest form on our website. If you are trans or non-binary in science and you would like to be a guest on the podcast, you can also contact us at ASABpod at gmail.com. 
And oh, our music is from Nicole Petkovich, friend of the show and previous guest. And if you like the show, please tell other people about it because word of mouth is really the number one way that podcasts and many things grow. And until next time, keep on sciencing.